Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. Church, I would invite the congregation to stand and please turn to Luke chapter 4, verse 18. As we will first pray and then read the Word of God as we continue our series, The Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. You were as a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Luke chapter 4. Verses 18 to 30, we're going to begin by Jesus preaching his first sermon. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And Jesus closed the book, gave it back to the attendants, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they got up and drove Jesus out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, Jesus went his way. Please be seated. So in the verses we just read, Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 30, it describes the content of Jesus Christ's first sermon. That sermon inaugurates Jesus' public ministry, and in that sermon, Jesus proclaims the gospel. He proclaims God's gospel, or good news, that God has come to save sinners. What then follows is Jesus' exposition 
Jesus' explanation of what the scriptures he just read, what they actually mean, and then the text gives us the subsequent response of the crowd. And after God preaches his first sermon, the crowd to whom he spoke did not give him a standing ovation. They didn't clap. They didn't cheer. They did not say that was the most moving, inspirational message I ever heard. What they, how they responded is with violence. And they tried to assassinate Jesus Christ. Why? Because in Jesus' exposition of the scriptures, he talks about the sovereignty of God. Christ explains to the people that the God who makes the gospel announcement is sovereign, is in control, is in charge. And the sovereignty of God is the most offensive doctrine in the entire Bible. Why? Because if God is sovereign, that means you're not. The sovereignty of God means that God is the supreme king who exercises his rule over creation. The sovereignty of God, when I say God is sovereign, that means that God is the supreme king who exercises his rule over creation. This morning, we're gonna keep it simple. I have one single solitary point. That point is God is sovereign, period. One point. Several applications. Because the people rejected Jesus' gospel message, this tells us the rejection of the gospel, whether 2,000 years ago in Nazareth or 2019 in America, the rejection of the gospel is actually more than the rejection of the gospel. It's actually a rejection of the sovereign God who proclaims the gospel. Now, in verse 20, the text says that Jesus sat down, which means he assumed the teaching position after he preached to explain and exposit the scriptures to his original listening audience. Jesus originally stands up. He's elevated when he's delivering the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God that's from a heavenly source. He stands up. But then to explain what the scriptures actually mean, he sits down. He brings it down low. He takes stuff that's high and heavenly and he unpacks it. He makes it plain so the people can understand what the scriptures actually mean. And then in verse 22, before Jesus actually begins breaking down the scriptures he preached a sermon on, verse 22 says, that all the people were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. Now, this is a crucial point not to miss. The original response of the crowd was that they were speaking well of Jesus. But in a couple of verses, they tried to kill him. 
What happens? The people heard the words, but didn't actually understand what the words meant. The people heard the gospel message, but their minds did not process the weight of truth that the God who proclaims the gospel message, the one who delivers it, is sovereign. And then the people look to one another and say, is this not Joseph's son? And in the context of what follows, the best way to interpret this question is in a negative sense, meaning the people are there in the original listening audience in the synagogue. Jesus gets up and says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel to the poor. Today the scripture has been filled in your hearing. And they're looking at him saying, what? This is Yeshua. This is the kid that we saw growing up in Nazareth. What is he talking about? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Is this not Joseph's son? Because you see, whenever we hear something that's unsettling, whenever we hear a message that we'd rather not take seriously, one of the first things we now do is assassinate the character of the messenger. And if you demean and belittle the speaker of that message as a nobody, now you can intellectually rationalize not paying any mind to whatever it is they said. If you can't demean the words, then go after the speaker. And this is a crucial point for us to understand in the 21st century. Turn on any news channel. Turn on any debate, and what is no one doing? No one is actually talking about the issue. What they're doing instead is calling one another names, like roll back in kindergarten on the playground. No, you're a potty head. No, you're a potty head. And once you're a potty head, you no longer have to listen to what they're saying. Church, why do we not think that whenever someone has the boldness, whenever someone has the zeal to preach and teach what the Bible actually says, one of the first things that person is given is a label like you're a fundamentalist, like you're a fanatic. Why do they do that? Because if you're on the fringe, if you're a looney tune somewhere out there, then we ought not to listen to what you have to say. So when the people say, is this not Joseph's son? It gives them an excuse not to listen to Jesus. And it's no surprise the people talking negatively about Jesus were Nazarenes, were people he grow, he grew up amongst. Because as Jesus will soon say, a prophet is not welcome in his own town. Familiarity breeds, to, breeds content. And experts are only people who carry a briefcase and live at least 200 miles away. Is this not Joseph's son? Verse 23, and Jesus says to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. This is what this means. Jesus, God in the flesh, is able to discern what people are thinking in their minds and what's going on in their hearts. And he preempts them. In their minds, they're quoting the proverb, physician, heal yourself. 
In plain English, the people are telling Jesus, stop talking. We don't want to hear your chit-chat anymore. Prove your message to us with signs and wonders. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Capernaum was a town in the region of Galilee where Jesus presently was. The Bible doesn't tell us specifically what Jesus did at Capernaum, but we know that at this point in the Bible, he had established a reputation as a miracle worker. The implication is that Jesus did a miracle in Capernaum, and now the Nazarenes were jealous. And they said, Jesus, prove your message to us by doing a sign. Do a sign so that we can believe you. In other words, their logic said, God, do a sign then we'll believe. God, perform for us, dazzle us, do something to wow our senses, and then we'll believe what you're saying. But the pressing reality, beloved, is this, that God never performs a sign to satisfy a lack of human faith or human curiosity. And consider that if you or someone you know is yearning, is desiring, is longing for a miracle, that presupposition may not be based on bold faith at all. That presupposition may be based on unbelief or a lack of faith. That person, maybe it could even be you right now, that person may not actually trust and believe in God and wants God to prove it to them by doing a miracle. Biblically speaking, the test of a true messenger from God is not their signs, it's their message. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 3. And what we'll learn a little bit later on when we put all these verses together is that unbelief makes us unworthy of God's sovereign power. People use logic in this way. They say, God, do a sign, then we'll believe. God's logic is completely different. God's logic is, for those who have faith, for those who already believe me, I may do a sign. And he may do it because God is sovereign. True biblical faith realizes whether God does a miracle or not, he's still sovereign. He's still trustworthy. He's still deserving of our lives, our trust, and our obedience. And the problem with Jesus' original listening audience here is that even if Jesus did do a sign and dazzled their senses, that wouldn't be enough. The problem would not be a lack of overwhelming evidence. The problem would not be that they were unable to see something with their eyes. The problem would be they wouldn't be able to see God as God. They wouldn't be able to interpret those facts properly because although they had pure natural vision, they were spiritually blind. And someone who is spiritually blind is unable to see God for who he really is. This is why in Christ's gospel message, he proclaims recovery of sight to the blind. 
so that now we are given the ability to see Jesus as Savior and Lord. Verse 24, and Jesus said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. And Jesus is foreshadowing his own rejection. Because the people did not hear, simply put, what he wanted, what he was going to say. What Jesus is now going to do in verses 25 to 27, he's going to expound upon the sermon he gave in verses 18 to 19. And in that exposition, Jesus proclaims that the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, is a free and finished gospel of grace, but that gospel is announced by a sovereign God. The gospel is good news, church, because the God who's in control announces it. If you don't have a sovereign God, you don't have the gospel. The gospel message tells us what God has already done, what he's already accomplished for our salvation. How does God do that? By his sovereignty. The gospel tells us that Jesus Christ is the only way. There's only one vessel of refuge and only one door to the ark. Why is there only one way? Because God is sovereign. The gospel tells us that the means by which God rescues humanity and pays the penalty for sin is with the not convenient, brutal, barbaric, his son dying on a cross. Why is that? Why did God choose that means? Because God is sovereign. There is no gospel. There is no good news without a sovereign God. Look, if I gave everyone a message today and said, hey, everybody, when you leave this church, all of your debts will be forgiven. If you have a mortgage, if you had credit card debt, if you have student debt, when you leave here, all debts will be forgiven. That announcement, that news means nothing. Why? Because I don't have the power. I don't have the authority to actually make good on that announcement. But when the sovereign God of the universe proclaims the gospel message, that is now good news. Because he's the one who not only announces the news, but now has the power to execute it. But here's the crucial point. A sovereign God not only proclaims the gospel, but God's not just sovereign when it comes to the gospel. A sovereign God is sovereign over everything. Everything. Every facet of reality. Meaning Jesus Christ is our Savior. Yea and amen. But he's also our Lord. As I preached before, if I knocked on your door one day and said, knock, knock, it's Elijah Sadafel, you can't tell me, Elijah, you can't come in, Sadafel, you stay out. Doesn't work like that. Doesn't work like that. Jesus Christ is Savior, yea and amen, but he's also our sovereign, precious Lord. This tells us something. The God of the Bible really is God. 
He really is capital G-O-D. And if the God of the Bible really is God, that means we're not only accountable to him now, everyone will ultimately be accountable to the one true sovereign God. Now, before I read verses 25 to 27, let us remember who Jesus was speaking to. He was speaking to first century Jews. What was the problem in their worldview? If you were a first century Jew, they thought they had a claim on God. They had an, a radically exclusive claim on God, meaning God had to operate the way they thought he ought to operate. They thought that God was only the God of Israel and God was not free to do as he pleased. And as a result, the first century Jews thought that God owed them something. Now let's make sure we're playing. I'm going to be saying Nazarene Jews original listening audience. But when I say Nazarenes Jews, I'm not really talking about Nazarenes and Jews. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. Because as long as, long as God gives me breath, whenever we open the Bible and read about someone behaving badly, we never delude ourselves to thinking, look at what they did. They're a bad person. I'm okay. Eh, wrong. The, God gave us the Bible for a reason so we can learn about him and ourselves. So when we read about a particular cohort that thought they had a radical exclusive claim on God, the first person I examine is me. Verse 25 to 27, Jesus says, But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephah in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus talks about two Old Testament prophets. Number one is the prophet Elijah. His narrative can be found in 1 Kings 17, verses 1 to 15. What happens there? God calls his prophet Elijah. During a famine in the land of Israel where people were starving because of covenantal disobedience. And what's the first mission God sends his prophet Elijah on? He sends him out of Israel, out of the promised land to where those people lived. To Zarephah, to where a widow was who was starving. And the first mission God sends his prophet on is to do a miracle from a woman who wasn't a Jew. And her hometown was actually a center for Baal worship. So not only was she one of those people, she was one of those really bad those people that you didn't want to hang out with. 
What happens in the Elisha narrative? That comes from 2 Kings 5, verses 1 to 14. Elisha is given a command to speak to Naaman, who was a Syrian, who was a foreigner, who was an alien. He was also a leper, meaning he was unclean, meaning he was an outcast. And God tells Elisha, tell Naaman to take seven dips in the Jordan and now Naaman was cleansed. Jesus was essentially telling his original listening audience that people who were supposed to be on the outside were actually in. And they were actually in because a sovereign God said they were in. And if a sovereign God says you are in, no one can ever dare tell you that you are out. In these verses, Jesus was basically saying, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Exodus 33, 19. Church, God is sovereign. This tells us no one has a right to write God prescriptions. This tells us that we cannot oppose him when he subverts our judgment. We can never dismiss someone as graceless or godless because that would be trying to supplant the sovereignty of God. The biblical example that highlights this perfectly is the man called Saul who was converted to Paul. If, if we met Saul when he was Saul, when he was a Pharisee, when he was a terrorist, when he was murdering Christians, he would qualify as an antichrist because he would deny Christ as the Messiah and he purposely made a living of wiping Christians out. Then what happens? Jesus meets Saul on the road to Damascus and he converts him. He turns his heart. Now what happens? If I were to meet Paul 2,000 years ago, what am I going to tell Paul? I don't believe you should be saved. What am I going to do? Get angry at God? It doesn't work like that because God is sovereign. And therefore, he will show grace on whom he will show grace. And that grace that he bestows is unmerited. He freely bestows it based upon his holy will on whom he chooses. Church, if God is not free, then he's not God. If God owed grace to anyone, then it's not grace. If God owed anybody anything, then he wouldn't be God. And don't get me wrong. Jesus Christ says, come and I will give you rest. So anyone who knows, anyone who realizes they deserve God's just judgment and comes to Jesus Christ in humble repentance, he will openly and warmly accept all those who believe in him by faith. But all of that being said, no one has a right to salvation. And no one has a claim on God because he is sovereign. And look at what Jesus actually says in verses 25 to 27. Both Elijah and Elisha did not go to outsiders because they were rejected by the Jews. No, 
They were sent to outsiders first, and they were sent to outsiders first based upon the decree of God, meaning even in God's decree, it wasn't conditional on the Jews. Church, whether we're talking about the Nazarenes, whether we're talking about our particular denomination in the 21st century, whether we're talking about our local church, no one has a claim on God because God is sovereign. The original listening audience had the worldview that God is mine no matter what. Therefore, he must do. Therefore, he must act according to our particular worldview. And Jesus basically says, no, he doesn't. Because God is sovereign. Now, if right now you feel completely at peace, you feel very comfortable, you say, this is a, a very great-sounding doctrine. You haven't gotten it yet. But if you feel unsettled, and you feel a little bit uncomfortable, and you feel as if your heart is wrestling with this doctrine, then you have understood every single word I preached to you this morning. Just like Jesus did, let's unpack this some more. Let's bring down to an earthly level, let's sit and make it plain what the sovereignty of God actually means. In his book, Systematic Theology, Wayne Grudem defines the sovereignty of God as, as such, quote, God is able to do according to his holy will in ruling over creation, end quote. God is able to do according to his holy will in ruling over creation. God is able to do, meaning he's all-powerful, meaning he's omnipotent, but he's able to do according to his holy will. He never exercises that power outside of his character, outside of his holiness. Meaning what? There are some things God cannot do. God can't sin. God can't lie. God always tells the truth. God could not make a decree and decree himself not to exist because God simply always is. And his sovereignty means he's able to do all according to his holy will. Because his will can never be frustrated. Here are some scriptural proofs on the sovereignty of God. 1 Chronicles 29, 11 to 12. 1 Chronicles 29, 11 to 12. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10. God speaks and says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. 
Last verse, Psalm 115.3. Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God is holy. God is love. God is truth. That's not offensive at all. Because God can be true. He can be holy. He can be love all the way over there. Well, I do what I want to do over here. All those things are not offensive at all. But the minute you say that God is sovereign, that's not tolerable. Because that means he's sovereign over you. Not just now, but over everybody from eternity past to eternity future. The sovereignty of God is the most offensive doctrine in the Bible because it exalts God for who he really is and it crushes man. It destroys pride. It crushes deceit and it exposes the God of self as a fraud. Do you know why prideful people spend their entire lives looking down on others? Because they never look up. They're always looking down at other people so they can lift themselves up. But the second someone opens their eyes and reveals to them there's a sovereign God above them, now they can't stand it and their heart is filled with rage. Let's apply this. God is sovereign. There are going to be three real-life practical applications to that doctrine. Here's the first. God is sovereign. Therefore, wrestling with this doctrine, that uncomfortableness you feel in your heart, wrestling with this doctrine is a heart problem. It's not a head problem. It's a heart problem. It's not a head problem. People can understand the fact, the data, the content that God is sovereign. But understanding it is easy. Accepting it as true and living it is a heart problem. Why do people find hell offensive? There's a secret. There's a real reason why when you brush over all the superficial arguments, people don't like hell because they don't like the idea that someone else can send you there. Because God is sovereign. Why is it people take offense? We live in New York City in the shadow of it. If you say I'm a this, I'm a that, People won't bother you, but the second you are to say there is one way to salvation and his name is Jesus Christ, that's offensive. Why? Because now a sovereign God tells us there are not multiple doors to the ark. There's only one. You may have heard of Calvinism. People like to label Calvinism with negative names. You may not know what it is. I don't know how much you do or don't know. Ultimately, Calvinism is based on the idea that God is sovereign, and that's why people don't like it. Yes, it's a biblical doctrine that God predestines. He sets apart as his those who will be his members of his elect before the foundation of the world. And that's a doctrine which is offensive because people don't like the idea that God is actually in charge. When it comes to who will be saved or not, no one ultimately chooses God. The reason why we are able 
to respond to God in faith is because a sovereign God is the one who turns our hearts and opens our eyes to see Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And that doctrine is the way that it is because God is sovereign. Can you imagine being a subject born on a king's land? You're born on the king's land, you breathe his air, you make a living based on being a member of his kingdom, and then you walk into his castle one day and say, hey king, I choose you. I choose you to be my lord. That would sound utterly and totally ridiculous, because it is ridiculous. And if we adopt the doctrine that we are the ones who ultimately choose God and salvation rests in our hands, what we're in essence saying is, God isn't sovereign, we are. That's why the sovereignty of God is so offensive. Second point, God is sovereign. Therefore, the reasonable thing to do is to believe. Why? Because God is sovereign. Because he's in charge, because he's control, in control from the very beginning, God has been demonstrating to us that he is sovereign. His son incarnates in this world by being born of a virgin. During his entire earthly ministry, he does miracles, proving to us that God is sovereign. At the cross, he wipes away the debt and penalty owed because of sin. And then God exerts his sovereign power and raises his son from death. And God did all of that to demonstrate to us over and over again that he is in charge. Therefore, with all of that data, with all of those evidences, with all of that proof, the reasonable, rational, logical response is to believe him, is to trust him with our eyes wide open. Our faith, beloved, is never blind. Our faith, beloved, always involves looking at what God has already done to prove that he is sovereign. So if anyone ever tells you that faith is blind, I would advise you to tell them in love to get their vision checked. Because our faith is based on the objective, historical, sovereign acts and deeds of our precious Lord. But not only that, not only is the reasonable and rational response to the sovereignty of God to believe, it also means we believe in the means. God being sovereign doesn't mean we now sit back and do nothing. It means we believe in the means that he has ordained in life. For example, God has ordained by his sovereign will that when you are born, when your death day is, God sets it. But now we also, he has also ordained the means of us doing what? Eating, drinking, sleeping, meaning we're active. We're actually doing something because God in his sovereign will decreed the means to do so. And if you were to reject the means, you perish. God has ordained in his sovereignty the means of Bible study the means of preaching, the means of evangelism, in that when you believe in God, you are no longer sitting back being passive. On the contrary, you really believe in the means he has prescribed. 
So if a preacher ever says, we should do less Bible, if a person ever says, I can't actually tell other people about Jesus and tell them scripture, if someone ever says, I don't think prayer and Bible study actually works, what they're really saying is, I don't actually believe that God is sovereign. And these are the means by which he has ordained. Third application, and this is by far the best one. God is sovereign. This now gives us eternal, unshakable comfort and assurance. Church, once we embrace the fact that God is sovereign, this means that someone who is now regenerated is now on the side of inexhaustible, holy, gracious omnipotence, where now God's sovereign power is engaged to work for you. Let me say that again. When you are saved, when you are a child of God, that now means God now extends his hand and engages his sovereign power to work for you as an almighty watcher and a sleepless friend who now uses that godly, sovereign power in gracious and loving ways. In his book, Body of Divinity, Thomas Watson said that when God made the world, he met no resistance because there was nothing. And as Psalm 8 tells us, God used his fingers to weave the fabric of reality into being. God did one miracle in the beginning. Do you not realize that when God turned your heart and made you able to respond to him in faith, he used his arm, not his fingers, Luke 151, meaning he used more effort. He not only did one miracle, he did multiple. He turned your warped heart sin. He fought the devil. He fought darkness. He fought the spirit of the age that was holding your will captive. And God did all of that so he could now call you one of his own. And my point is that the sovereign God of the universe never wastes effort. He's not going to do all of that to ever leave you alone. God uses his power to release you from captivity, to restore your sight, to set you free. God uses his power to wash away shame, to wash away guilt, and then in everyday life, he installs a full body shield to protect you from the left, from the right, from the front, from the back, from above and below. And he now extends his sovereign hand to shield you and comfort you when you endure the terror by night. And then God uses his power to raise you to new life as you now abide not in your own power, but in the sovereign power of the one true vine, Jesus Christ. God is sovereign. This now gives us unshakable assurance, hope, and confidence. So that's the sovereignty of God. How did the Nazarenes respond? How did the original listening audience take that doctrine? When Jesus finishes saying these verses, now they get it. Now they understand 
all of the ramifications of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Jesus was so crystal clear in his explanation. There was now actually no way the Nazarenes could have misunderstood him. And what the text now says is they were filled with rage and tried to assassinate the Son of God. Essentially, all of the Nazarenes in the original listening audience, they didn't trust God. They didn't believe him. They didn't actually trust that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. And what's so ironic now at the end of Jesus' exposition is that the people in his original listening audience, they thought they were people on the inside. Now they, by their unbelief, had become people on the outside. It's no wonder Jesus did not do a miracle at the beginning of our verses because look how the people responded. Inside of their hearts, they had an animosity, they had a hatred, and they had a disdain for God. They didn't want God, they just wanted the miracle that God could provide. They had no use for the Messiah. And the crowd ironically proved that Jesus Christ really was a prophet of God. Why? Because he was rejected. That's how God works. Because prophets of the Lord always speak the truth. They never seek favor with men. They seek favor with God. And in seeking favor with God and in preaching the sovereignty of God, violent human hearts reject it in a visceral, darkness-like manner. And because Jesus did spiritual violence to their thinking, to their theology, they responded with outward physical violence. Which is why even today, people reject the prophets of God because in the end, if a person is angry or if the sovereignty of God unsettles them, they can't fight God. They can't kick him out of town. They can't hurl insults at the Almighty. So what they do instead is they attack his prophets. Final verse this morning. Verse 30 says, But passing through their midst, Jesus went his way. Because God will engage his sovereign power to keep you, to secure you, and to protect you until your work is done. As I preached before, church, when you are in Jesus Christ, you are immortal until God's purposes in your life are complete. Jesus left Nazareth that day and he continued preaching and teaching through all of what we call modern-day Israel. And the final sermon that Jesus preached was at Calvary 2,000 years ago on the cross. It was a sermon that wasn't comfortable. It was a sermon that wasn't convenient. It was a sermon that wasn't pretty. It was a sermon where if any reasonable, logical person was, li was living by sight and saw what they were doing to God, they would say, this doesn't make any sense. But oftentimes, the sovereignty of God doesn't make sense to you and I because our finite minds cannot comprehend infinite omniscience. And although what happened on the outside was gruesome and barbaric, what Jesus did spiritually, internally, is he took our shame, our sin, our suffering, and our separation from God away.
so now we will be free to live for him. Now I'm going to close this morning with three questions. Now that we know, now that I hope everyone knows that God is sovereign, here are now three questions. God is sovereign, fact, so do you trust him? What I'm asking you is, do you actually believe in your heart that God is sovereign? Number two, do you desire him? God is not just all-powerful. He also gives us love, assurance, comfort, security, and God is the best there is. God's not only all power, he's also the most gratifying, the most satisfying, the object of our affection. So the question is, now that you know God is the best there is and he is sovereign, do you desire him? And the final question is, do you follow him? Because our text tells us that Jesus left Nazareth that day. And guess what? No one followed him. God left. No one followed because no one actually embraced that the sovereign God sent his sovereign son to preach the gospel. So my closing question to you this morning is, now that you know God is sovereign, do you follow him? Will you abandon the God of self and follow him? Will you abandon your unbelief and follow him? Will you abandon any theology that rejects, dilutes, or waters down the sovereignty of God? And will you follow Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Precious Lord, we know the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is one that is unsettling and one that is disturbing. And I just pray, precious Lord, in closing today, that you humble the hearts and minds of all the listeners here today, including me, that we will be able to see you, precious Lord, in your sovereignty, working salvation from start to finish, knowing that if at any point a man was sovereign in the salvation formula, no one would ever be saved. Which is why, precious Lord, we lean upon you, we trust you, and ask you to graciously mold and shape our hearts and minds that we may hear, that we may meditate on, and we will treasure this doctrine in our hearts so we will not only trust you, but we will desire you and we will follow you knowing that you are a mighty fortress and in you there is eternal comfort, safety, peace, and security. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit wcsk.org. Until next time, peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.